And yet, as another wave of that shameless summons drifts over us, everything inside me stirs and shifts. Ligusta. And yet it's whispering to me of something secret, of some dark and unsettling thing at the back of my mind, of something I don't quite like to think about. I wake up in the night with the word nagging at me. Ligusta. Hold on, though. Was my daughter speaking English when she told me that? I get down the dictionary. No, she wasn't. And as soon as I see what it is in English, I can't help laughing again. Of course! How obvious! I'm laughing this time partly out of embarrassment, because a professional translator shouldn't be caught out by such a simple word. And also because now I know what it is, it seems such a ridiculously banal and inappropriate cue for such powerful feelings. Now all kinds of things come back to me. Laughter, for a start, on a summer's day nearly sixty years ago. I've never thought about it before, but now there she is again, my friend Keith's mother, in the long-lost green summer shade, her brown eyes sparkling, laughing at something Keith has written. I see why, of course, now that I know what it was, scenting the air all around us. Then the laughter's gone. She's sitting in the dust in front of me, weeping, and I don't know what to do or what to say. All around us once again, seeping unnoticed into the deepest recesses of my memory to stay with me for the rest of my life, is that sweet and luring reek. Keith's mother. She must be in her nineties now. Or dead. How many of the others are still alive? How many of them remember? What about Keith himself? Does he ever think about the things that happened that summer? I suppose he may be dead, too. Perhaps I'm the only one who still remembers. Or half remembers. Glimpses of different things flash into my mind in random sequence and are gone. A shower of sparks. A feeling of shame. Someone unseen coughing, trying not to be heard. A jug covered by a lace weighted with four blue beads. And, yes, those words spoken by my friend Keith that set everything off in the first place. It's often hard to remember the exact words that someone uttered half a century ago, but these are easy, because there were so few of them. Six, to be precise, spoken quite casually, like the most passing of remarks, as light and insubstantial as soap bubbles. And yet they changed everything. As words do. I suddenly have the feeling that I should like to think about all this at some length, now I've started, and to establish some order in it all, some sense of the connections. There were things that no one ever explained, things that no one even said. There were secrets. I should like to bring them out into the daylight at last, and I sense the presence still 
even now that I've located the source of my unrest, of something at the back of it all that remains unresolved. I tell my children I'm going to London for a few days. Do we have a contact for you there? asks my well-organized daughter-in-law. Memory lane, perhaps? suggests my son, dryly. We are evidently all speaking English together. He consents my restlessness. Exactly, I reply. The last house before you go round the bend and it turns into Amnesia Avenue. I don't tell them that I'm following the track of a shrub that flowers for a few weeks each summer and destroys my peace. I certainly don't tell them the name of the shrub. I scarcely like to name it to myself. It's too ridiculous. Everything is as it was, I discover when I reach my destination, and everything has changed. Nearly half a century has passed since I last stepped out of a train at this little wooden station, but my feet carry me with a kind of effortless, dreamlike inevitability down the sloping station approach to the quietly busy mid-afternoon main road, left towards the muddled little parade of shops, and left again by the letterbox into the long, straight, familiar avenue. The main road's full of fussy new traffic arrangements. The shops have impersonal new commercial names and frontages, and the stringy prunus saplings I remember along the verges of the avenue are now wise and dignified trees. But when I turn the corner once again, off the avenue into the close, there it is, as it always was, the same old, quiet, sweet, dull ordinariness. I stand on the corner looking at it, listening to it, breathing it in, not sure whether I'm moved to be here again after all this time, or whether I'm quite indifferent. I walk slowly up to the little turning circle at the end. The same fourteen houses sit calmly complacent in the warm, dull summer afternoon, exactly as they always did. I walk slowly back to the corner again. It's all still here, exactly as it always was. I don't know why I should find this so surprising. I wasn't expecting anything different. And yet... After fifty years, as the first shock of familiarity subsides, though, I begin to see that everything's not really as it was at all. It's changed completely. The houses have become tidy and tedious, their disparate architectural styles somehow homogenized by new porches and lamps and add-on timbering. Even the sky has changed. Once the war was written across it in a tangled scribble of heroic vapour trails. There were the upraised fingers of the searchlights at night, and the immense coloured palaces of falling flares. Now even the sky has become mild and bland. I hesitate on the corner again. I'm beginning to feel rather foolish. Have I come all this way just to walk up the road and back, and smell the cypress hedges? I can't think what else to do, though, or what else to feel. I've come to the end of my plans. And then I become aware of the atmosphere changing around me. 
it takes me a moment to locate the cause. It's a sound. The sound of an unseen train, muffled and distant at first, then bursting into the clear as it emerges from the cutting through the high ground behind the houses at the top of the close, just like the train I arrived on twenty minutes earlier. It passes invisibly along the open embankment behind the houses on the left-hand side of the street, then crosses the hollowness of a bridge and slows towards the station beyond. As this familiar sequence of sounds unrolls, the whole appearance of the close shifts in front of my eyes. The house on the left-hand corner here, the one I'm standing outside, becomes the Sheldons. The house on the opposite corner, the Hardiments. I begin to hear other sounds. The endless scales played by the Hardiments pale children from gloomy rooms behind the screen of neatly pleached limes still there. I know if I turn my head, I shall see further along the street the Geest twins playing some complex skipping game together, their identical pigtails identically bouncing. But of course, what I'm looking at now is number two, next to the Hardiments. Even this appears curiously like all the other houses now, in spite of the fact that it's attached to number three, the only semi detached pair in the close. It seems to have acquired a name, Wentworth. It was just a number when I lived in it. Our house was made even more shameful by the partner it's yoked to, which was in an even worse state than ours, because the pincher's garden was a dump for abandoned furniture warped by the rain and offcuts of lumber and metal that Mr. Pincher had stolen from work. Or so everyone in the street believed. Perhaps it was just because of the name.